Um, I, you know, these kinds of things always make me reflective. Um, I try to be reflective as, as a pastor, as a, as a, just a follower of Jesus who loves the church, on the history of the church. Um, we, we get stuck in this, this American model, this American mindset of what the church is, and so often that's just simply equated with buildings and, and steeples and all of these different ministries. But when you move through the history of the church, uh, the vast majority did not include those things. Um, when you go to the book of Acts, they were meeting in houses. If they were in Jerusalem, they would meet in certain sections of the Temple Mount. And, uh, it was a different thing. And as you think through the history of the church, they faced um, just seasons of persecution um, where it wasn't a disease that was trying to exterminate them. It was guys like the Apostle Paul, which we'll talk about this morning. And, and their numbers were few, and their gatherings were different and significant. Uh, and then they faced different pestilences and famines and, and diseases. You think of the church and how they functioned through the Black Plague and many of those things that devastated masses of the population during those days. It's important for us to think that way because this building isn't the church. And even this group that's here, this isn't the full church. This isn't the full of Meadowview. There's a lot of our family who aren't here today. And, and it's important for us to recognize that week in and week out. Uh, I, I, want, I, I want people to notice when somebody's not here. Uh, whether they're sick, they're on vacation, uh, they just didn't want to come that day, whatever those reasons are. Because the church is us. We're the body of Christ. And, and we're recording this. And I just want, uh, you know, the people who aren't here today who are going to watch this to, to know that we've prayed for you. We started praying for you at 8 o'clock this morning. And we've prayed during the service for those of you who are sick, those of you who can't join us today. Um, I, I just want to mention a couple of specific things uh, that are going on. One, uh, George Atkinson. Uh, many of you know George and Becky. And this is one of those things where I have to be honest and say, I've just, there's certain times where I'm just not a very good pastor. George and Becky haven't been coming for quite a while. They've actually been going to another church. And the reasoning behind that is uh, George's mom who comes with him, it's nearly impossible for her to get up this hill and get into this auditorium. And so they found somewhere they can go uh, to participate. But George has been having some significant health issues. He had a procedure Friday. Um, where they, they assumed there was some sort of blockage in his leg and they were able to clear that up. He's, he's mending and time will tell. But pray for George and Becky. Uh, pray for them. Uh, reach out to them. Let them know that you're thinking about them. And then tomorrow, uh, Holly Turner has surgery on her shoulder. She's been in a great deal of pain uh, for quite some time now. And uh, they're going to go in and try to make those specific repairs. And so pray Pray specifically for Holly tomorrow as well as, as she faces that. And again, I know there's a lot of other sickness. There's a lot of other things that are going around now. Uh, just be mindful. We're the body of Christ. That's who we are. So, Last week from Galatians chapter 1, 6-10, through 10, we learned that sometime after Paul and Barnabas established the churches in Galatia, uh, Acts 14, that's what's going on. So it's kind of cool when you look at the New Testament because you do have the book of Acts that kind of walks you through the history, but then you've got all these letters that are written at different time periods that, that fall within the realm of the book of Acts. And so we'll see some of that again this morning. But sometime after they had done this, false teachers had moved into those churches and they were preaching another gospel. 
or better stated, they were distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul and Barnabas had originally teached. They were taking things out of that message, things like grace, and they were adding things into that message, things like you need to be circumcised if you are going to be truly saved or delivered from your sins, as this is a requirement, they would say. And in the opening paragraph of the letter to the Galatians, Paul pronounces anathema. I mean, that is a strong word. That's a word of condemnation and judgment. He pronounces anathema on anyone who would distort this gospel message. And uh, as we discussed last week, the responsibility to make sure that that message stays pure falls on us. That message, the gospel message, has been entrusted to the body of Christ, the church. And it is our job. And uh, I, I, I pray that as we continue to move through the letter to Galatians, we'll recognize the seriousness of that. And uh, we will take great care of this most important message. But last week we did leave off on verse 10. And, and we talked about this at the end of the sermon, that this is a bridge verse. It's a verse that kind of connects what Paul's already said to where he's going. And so I just want to read that. It says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, the false teachers, they were not only trying to destroy and distort and destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're also attempting to discredit Paul. They want to get the message and the messenger. And so if they can take both of those out and twist both of those, then they will be successful in what they're attempting to do. So they're calling into question Paul's character. They're accusing him of being a, a people pleaser by not requiring followers of Jesus to practice certain things that are found in the Mosaic law, like circumcision. Paul said that doesn't, that's not necessary for salvation. They're saying, you're just trying to please people and make it easy so people like you. And uh, Paul says, if I was trying to please people, I would have never become a servant of Jesus Christ. Because I was a Pharisee. I was the best people pleaser ever. Uh, he's alluding to what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 6. Remember in Matthew 6 uh, where Jesus talks about the Pharisees and how when they pray, they stand on the corner and they pray real loud so that everybody can hear them? And he says they have the reward for that. Or, or when they give their offering, they blast the trumpet so everybody can see that they're putting their offering in. And Jesus says you have your reward. That's what Paul's talking about. The whole system of Phariseeism was built so that people would see you and they would be pleased by your actions. Paul says, that was my life. And if I wanted to please people, I would have never gave that up. I'm a servant of Christ now. But, but as we mentioned, this verse tees up this full argument that Paul goes into. It's a historical defense. It starts in verse 11, and it actually goes all the way into chapter 2. Uh, we're not going to get into chapter 2 today. We're going to cover uh, the first few verses, Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, where Paul argues this. That this message that he is preaching, it did not originate with him. It did not originate with any other man. It certainly did not originate with the other apostles. That's what we'll see him argue. But it came from Jesus Christ himself. And so I want to read, uh, if you'll follow along with me, Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 11 today. We've got a couple chunks of scripture we're going to look at. But here's what he says. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, 
how I persecuted the church of God, and I violently, and I tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas or Peter and I remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm saying and writing to you, behold, before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Father, we ask now your blessing as we consider the text, your word today. God, you've, you've preserved this. It's been recorded for us for our admonition and for our learning. And I pray that would be what takes place today as we consider these truths from the Apostle Paul. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul's main point comes in verses 11 and 12, uh, where he argues that the message of Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, this message that, that he has preached to the churches of Galatia was not something he received from a man. It wasn't man's gospel, but what does he say? It was received in revelation, through revelation of Jesus Christ. Initially, that claim actually made me think of something that Peter wrote in his second Epistle, 2 Peter 1.16, here's what Peter says. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. In other words, Peter is saying that this message, this message of Jesus isn't some story that we the disciples concocted in the upper room together. Uh, it was the story that we watched with our own eyes. It, it played out before us. We were eyewitnesses of the Messiahship of Jesus, meaning that He, Jesus, is the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament. He is the Anointed One. He is the Promised One, the One that is called Christ, the One that is called Messiah. But what about Paul? Did he ever witness the majesty and the Messiahship of Jesus? While the others were following Jesus... Uh, learning from him, gathering in the upper room, waiting for the Spirit. While they had already begun preaching the gospel, Paul was rising in the ranks of the Pharisees. So did he ever have this experience? Where did this revelation come from? He was a part of the group that put Jesus to death. In verse 12, Paul's big claim, the big argument is this, that he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, when and where did that happen? The Damascus Road. Look with me at Acts chapter 9. This is the other text we're going to look at today. Acts 9. If you go back just a couple of books. 
Sometimes it's just helpful to look at the full brunt of the story. Acts chapter 9. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read as Luke records for us regarding the conversion of Saul, whose name would become Paul. It says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, notice the capital, the way, that's a, a reference that was made to Christians, disciples of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but they saw no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were closed, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen, a, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard of this dude. I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That day on the Damascus road, the gospel of Jesus was revealed to Paul. When the resurrected Jesus himself appeared before him. Up to this point, Paul had vehemently and violently denied that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed in a Jesus. No doubt he had at some level interacted uh, with Jesus, noted him in and around Jerusalem, but he believed in a Jesus. He just did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But seeing and hearing the resurrected Jesus proved that he was in fact the promised Christ that would come. And so on the Damascus Road, Paul saw the risen Christ and the gospel in all its glory became known to him. It doesn't mean that Saul never learned any truths from other people, though. It doesn't mean that 
uh, he, he never understood more things about who Jesus was and what he had done. In fact, before his conversion, we know that, that Saul was there when Stephen was put to death, meaning he was there when Stephen gave his uh, prophetic word and his message regarding Christ and Jesus being the fulfillment of the Christ in Acts 6 and Acts chapter 7. He heard the gospel that day. He heard the good news. No doubt Ananias and the other Christians there in Damascus taught Jesus things, but the essentials of the message were revealed to him that day, seeing the resurrected Jesus. And from that day forward, Paul had good news that he intended to share with the world. But he isn't content to leave the argument there. Paul, he loves a thorough argument. And so he continues to push against the false teachers. And he does so because he loves the Galatians. He loves these Christians. And there are those who have come in and they're pulling them away from Christ. And out of love, he, he digs his heels in and he continues to press the argument forward. And that's what we see in Galatians 1, 13, all the way down into chapter 2. I want to go over three of those arguments with you today. First, he urges the Galatians to consider his past. Verses 13 and 14. In 13, he reminds them what they already knew about him. His former life was in Judaism. Now, Judaism is different than being a Jew. Paul was a Jew by no choice of his own. He was born ethnically a Jew. But his choice was to follow the religion and the practices of Judaism, which was the practice of, of obeying and learning and living according to the principles of the Mosaic Law, 613 of the Mosaic laws that are mentioned particularly in the Old Testament. And Paul wasn't just any religious Jew. He was, by his own admission in verse 13, a persecutor of the church. He says, I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. And what we read in the book of Acts and a few other letters, it, it supports this idea. Acts chapter 8 verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Saul was the one at the end of Acts chapter 7, the beginning of Acts chapter 8, who was there overseeing the, the, the stoning death of Stephen. They laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul. Acts 9.1, which we just read, Saul is still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He describes his own actions in 1 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 Timothy, all things that you have in your bulletin. You can look at those in your own time. To this point, author and New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner writes, he said, Paul's efforts to exterminate the church did not spring from guilt. Understand that. It wasn't guilt. Before he was converted, he was utterly convinced that Jesus was not the Messiah. And that, this, this particular sect that was promulgating such teaching was seriously mistaken. Therefore, when God revealed Jesus to him on the Damascus road, he was totally astonished that his zeal and his passion had been misdirected. That describes well his, his conversion on the Damascus road. But, but he wasn't just any religious Jew. He goes on again to describe in detail, I was a superior religious Jew. In verse 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my own people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Again, from other portions of the New Testament, we learn of the dedication of Paul to Judaism. He was a student of Gamaliel, 
uh, one of the most famous historical teachers of the law. Acts 5, Acts 22, we learn that he was a pupil. From Philippians 3, 5, we learn that when, when it came to the law, he was a Pharisee. Again, the Pharisees, this strictest of groups, that they, they memorized, they knew, they understood the law of Moses. They protected it. But it wasn't just a matter of keeping these laws. It was a matter of keeping the traditions that surround the laws. The traditions that he says, I was zealous to keep. These traditions were ordered together over time in particular books known as the Mishnah, uh, the Jerusalem, the Babylonian Talmud. These are maybe words that you've heard used in time past. And to this point regarding traditions, I want to read what MacArthur writes. He says, Ancestral traditions referred to the body of oral teaching about the Old Testament law that came to have equal authority with the law commonly known as the Helica. This collection of Torah interpretations became, understand his imagery, a fence around God's revealed law that all but hid it from view. And over a period of several hundred years, it had expanded into a mammoth accumulation of religious, moral, legal, practical, ceremonial regulations that defied comprehension, much less total compliance. It contained such vast amounts of minutia that even the most learned rabbinical scholars could not master it, either by interpretation or in their behavior and actions. Yet the more complex and burdensome it became, the more zealously Jewish legalists, like Paul, revered and propagated it. What he's talking about in the traditions are like the laws about how many steps a person could take on the Sabbath day. And if you went beyond that amount of steps, then you're breaking the law and you're not keeping the Sabbath. Or that you, you probably shouldn't bathe on the Sabbath day because if water splashes out, you may have cleaned the floor or done a chore in the house and you may have worked on the Sabbath. I think of this story that we see in the New Testament where Jesus is walking through the field with his disciples and they reach out and they grab some of the heads of grain and, and roll them together to, to make a little flour and they're going to eat it. And I, I don't know if they popped out of the bushes, but the Pharisees show up and they say, Ah, you're harvesting on, on the Sabbath day. And they make accusations against Jesus and the disciples. That's that famous section where Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I make the rules. This is why Jesus would come on the scene and say, you Pharisees, you put burdens on the backs of the people that even you yourselves can't bear. And it's why I would say to the masses, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I did find it interesting that I read that Gamaliel seemed to be a proponent of making reformations to many of these ridiculous laws. So Paul might have been somewhat sympathetic uh, as being a pupil of Gamaliel that some of these things are quite ridiculous that we're requiring of the people. But pre-conversion Paul would have ultimately viewed himself as a warrior, a protector of the law. A protector of these 613 commands that are found in the Old Testament. A protector in the long line of protectors like Phineas and Numbers who comes in and stops the pestilence and plague by sticking a spear through those two individuals who are in an immoral relationship. Or, or a warrior like Elijah who stood down 950 prophets of Baal. Or in that intertestamental period uh, like Matthias 
who would slaughter the Jew who was assisting Antiochus Epiphanes in the, uh, in, in the temple and, and what they were doing to defame the name of God. So when this new faith, these new followers of Jesus began to threaten the supremacy of the law, Paul is moved with zeal to destroy them, to drive a stake through the heart of this new movement. And a point to, to recognize here, I think for all of us, is this. We can be 100% zealous about something and 100% mistaken. <laughs> Paul's life proves that. No one was more zealous that we know of. And no one was more wrong. But by His grace, Jesus had other plans for Paul. Plans that he shares in verses 15 through 17. We already read Acts 9. So already laid that groundwork where Luke records Paul's encounter with the resurrected Jesus. But here in these verses, Paul uh, provides us with the, his personal take. And so let's consider God's sovereign call on Saul or Paul's life. As humans, we're often tempted to think that God is somehow responding in real time to the events of our lives. So now that, now that coronavirus is spreading and God's people are crying out, we think, well, God is he's now moving. He's now doing something, as if this is something he didn't know about. Or particularly maybe some would think in, in Paul's life that, that Jesus saw the zeal of Paul and thought, I want to get that guy on my team. I want him, and so he goes and appears to him, and then Saul becomes a follower of Jesus and not a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. Well, we're tempted sometimes to think that life works that way, but Paul is very clear here, that's not how it worked. This Damascus Road encounter with Jesus had been planned before Paul was even born. That's Paul's statement. He writes, when he who had set me apart before I was born, he'd established me. When he called me, that language is undeniably reminiscent of what we see in the Old Testament. Two particular places. Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to me, O coastland. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Isaiah says, I was a prophet before I was born. Jeremiah Jeremiah is called Jeremiah. Now the word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah chapter 1. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's very clear that Paul wants the Galatians, Paul wants them to recognize that his calling to apostleship is on the same level with Isaiah's calling to prophetic ministry and Jeremiah's calling to prophetic ministry. And rightfully so, because on that day, on the Damascus Road, he was specifically set apart by Jesus to take the gospel to the nations, to the Gentile people. But then Paul writes this, he called me by his grace. Paul's conversion and calling find their origin and explanation in God's will and good pleasure. I challenge you to read Ephesians chapter 1 to help you better understand God's will and good pleasure in that. Author John Stott writes this. He says, Now, a man in that mental and emotional state is in no mood to change his mind. <laughs> Absolutely true. Or even to have it changed for him by men. Only God could reach him. And God did. He did. Paul didn't earn this. Paul did not deserve this. In fact, in this moment, Paul was at the worst in his life. He was so full of pride. He was so arrogant 
that he was zealously and savagely working to destroy the very body of Christ from the face of the earth. He was so far, to use his own words to the Romans, from the glory of God at this moment. But it's here on the Damascus Road at his worst that Jesus comes to him. By grace, Jesus saves him, calling him into service. And Paul, like a dead man, he comes alive, moving forward to follow Jesus. And in verse 16, he says this, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. I returned again to Damascus. See, next we need to consider and think about Paul's immediate obedience. That's what obedience is. It's immediate, right? We obey, we follow, we do what the Master tells us to do. At the conclusion of verse 16, Paul circles back again to this main point and argument. We've always got to keep that in line because it can get easy to lose Paul's train of thought sometimes. But what's the main point? That the gospel did not originate with him. It did not originate with other men. And by recounting that he didn't consult with the apostles, Peter, James, and John immediately. He didn't encounter them for three years. He never even met them. Instead, he spent time preaching the gospel that he received. He preached it in Arabia. He preached it in Damascus. Again, we already read from Acts 9 that Paul began teaching in the synagogues in Damascus that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, wouldn't that have been amazing? I mean, I love Ananias' response. Like, wait, did you say the guy from Tarsus? Pretty sure I heard he's coming here to kill us all. And you want me to go pray over him and invite him into the synagogue. To be there that day when Paul, Saul, stands and says, he's the Messiah. He's the one. We have to address here, though, what many call Paul's lost years. <laughs> Because there's three years that we don't really know what happened and there's so much speculation about what took place during these three years. We know that he's in Damascus. We know that he's even moving further east from Damascus into the deserts of Arabia. But there's a lot of speculation. What's he doing? Some think that he just went to Arabia and sat under a, a palm tree somewhere and just thought about his life and thought about the Old Testament for three years. We don't know. Maybe he did that for a while. But we do know this. He was preaching the gospel in Arabia. Because what happens after he returns back to Damascus, the king of Arabia is waiting for him because he's ticked off that Paul's been preaching the gospel in his country and amongst his people. And that's why there's more of an uproar in Damascus and they have to eventually lower him out of the, the, the walled city in a basket because they're out to get him and kill him already. But at some point, he comes back to Damascus before he makes this first trip to Jerusalem. In this final section, Paul urges the Galatians, urges the Galatians to consider even his obscurity. On this point, I'm going to be brief. We're talking about verse 18 through 24. Paul doesn't go back to Jerusalem for three years after his conversion to Jesus. In Jerusalem, we learn that he visited with Peter. He was there 15 days. Uh, we're, we're looking in the time frame. For some of you who are like me, you like to know when's this happening. 33, 34 AD, somewhere in that perspective is when Paul is here in Jerusalem three years after his conversion. During that time, he didn't see any of the other apostles save James, he says, who is the brother of Jesus the one who would author the book of James that we find uh, towards the conclusion of the New Testament. 
And to this point that he, that he makes, Paul makes this emphatic statement that you see in parentheses in your Bible. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Why does he have to be so emphatic? Why is he telling him I'm not lying to you about this? What's the big deal about going to Jerusalem and visiting with Peter? Well, it seems that some of the false teachers who were in the Galatia area were accusing Paul of having received his gospel from the other apostles. They were denying his experience that he's talking about happened on the Damascus Road. And they're saying, your gospel isn't original with you and Jesus. Your gospel is original with the other apostles. You're just making all of this up. They're calling his character into question. And from here, Paul says, I traveled to Syria, Cilicia. You can look on your maps and see where that is. That's what's southern Turkey, where it's on the, uh, the, the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea in our present day. And this account matches with what we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 30, where Paul sends off for Tarsus, his hometown. He goes back home after he visits with Peter for 15 days. He goes to Tarsus, where later Barnabas finds him and encourages him, Hey, brother, why don't you come to Antioch with me? Acts chapter 11. And then from Antioch, Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, they leave on what we call Paul's first missionary journey. I just think it's pretty cool that Paul went back to his hometown for a little while. What was he doing there? I guarantee he was doing this. He was preaching the gospel to his family, to his friends. He wanted them to hear the good news of Christ. And so he spent time in his hometown of Tarsus before going with Barnabas. But back to Galatians 1, 22, 23, 24. Here, here Paul's argument is this. I'm no celebrity in Judea. He's talking about the area of Jerusalem, Israel proper. He says, they have not influenced me in any way. I have not influenced them in any way. As a matter of fact, most of the people don't even know my name there. The only thing they know is that there was one guy who was persecuting people, and now he's not. Now he's following Jesus, and they're glorifying God because of it. But he said, I didn't spend enough time there for them to influence me and for me to influence them. This gospel, back to his main argument, is original with me from Jesus himself. Now, I understand, because I studied this all week, that's a lot of information. I mean, this is a lot of stuff. This is a lot of argument. And we're not even done yet. We've still got chapter 2 where he continues to drive this particular point home. But please understand that, that this is one of those texts that we have to work through to get to Paul's main point, to get to the main thrust of what he is trying to get across. And so today is about laying some groundwork. And even next week, uh, by God's grace, whatever happens, we'll continue to outline Paul's history with the apostles. Um, he's just trying to clear up any of that false information that they're believing about him, but more importantly, the false information that they're spreading about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But a few points that I want to make today that I want us to consider just as we conclude. There, first of all, there, there seems to be this overarching principle. We already find coming to light in what Paul's writing to the Galatians, and that's this, that integrity matters when it comes to preaching the gospel. A person's character matters when it comes to preaching the gospel. The message and the messenger are always connected. They're attempting to discredit Paul's message of Jesus by discrediting Paul himself. 
And so you see him not only uh, responding uh, regarding their, their false teaching about Jesus, but also their false teaching about him, because he gets this. Uh, we know that God can use anyone uh, to accomplish his purposes. Go back to the Old Testament. He used a donkey in Balaam's life to accomplish his purposes. Uh, he can use whatever he wants, but his desire is always to use people of integrity to deliver this life-changing message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. So we can't be the people at work who cheat, lie, slander, gossip, speak with harshness, and then immediately be the one that turns around when Karen's mom gets cancer and say, hey, I'm going to be praying for you. Do you see the disconnect? We can't be the parents who scream and yell at our kids all the way to church and then say, all right, let's go. Put your happy faces on. Let's go worship Jesus today. Do you see the disconnect? The message and the messenger, they're interconnected. The false teachers are trying to show that there's some sort of hypocrisy with Saul, much like they did with Jesus, right? They're trying to discredit Jesus, and they have this false trial, and all these false people are coming in. I saw him do this, and they can't find anybody to collaborate. Person after person, and they're trying to do this same thing with Paul. What about your life? Is the, does the way you live your life discredit the message you claim to believe, and the Savior you claim to love and follow. Understand, I'm not demanding perfection. God knows that is not possible for any of us. That's why Jesus came. But we do have to be aware. And we have to be willing to repent when we see this hypocrisy. That's what it is. It's hypocrisy. It's being an actor in certain arenas of your life so that you're trying to play the part of a good follower of Jesus, but the rest of your life is a mess. We have to recognize that if we're going to be messengers of the gospel, we have to be people of integrity. Paul's striving. He's showing us this in this big picture. Second, just as God had a purpose for Paul's life, he has a purpose for your life too. We often think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Paul. Man, these are, these are significant figures. And they did. They played major roles in God's plan and helping us see and unfold God's plan in front of us. But understand, God has a ministry for you too. You are gifted in some way. You have been placed in a sphere of influence in some way. So often, Jesus' followers think and believe things like, my life doesn't matter. My absence doesn't matter. I don't necessarily have a big purpose in life. I, if I disappeared, it wouldn't really affect anybody. And sadly, that's the outcome of how so many in our society think because that's what happens when you have a godless society where there's no creator. There's no purpose. There's no direction. But please listen to me. Before God formed you in your mother's womb, He had a purpose for you. Every single one of you were created for purpose. He's placed you in a specific family 
uh, in a specific job, in a specific community, in a specific church, for you to serve and use your gifting for His glory and for the good of His people. And it's so easy for us to forget that. It's so easy for us to grow cynical and not even think about it in that way. Or selfish and not even think about it in that way. But I want you to know that. I, I love the quote uh, that's attributed to William Carey. Others have said it. William Carey being a famous missionary. But he just says this, Wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there. Because that is where God has you. Finally, last point, we rejoice in God's sovereign grace. I want to read to you what Tim Keller writes on this point. He says, Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God, working powerfully on the mind and heart to change lives. And there's no clearer example than Paul that salvation is by grace alone, not through our moral and religious performance. Though Paul's sins were very deep, he was invited in. Paul's experience proves vividly that the gospel is not simply religion. That is, it is generally understood. The gospel calls us out of religion as much as it calls us out of irreligion. No one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel, nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. Paul was deeply religious, but he needed the gospel. Paul was also deeply flawed, but he needed the gospel. C.S. Lewis once said this, Christianity must be from God, for who else could have thought it up? And I love that line by Lewis. It says so much. Because in a day where, where pluralism continues to grow, pluralism being the teaching that all roads ultimately lead to the same place, all religions move us to the same God, you can call Him whatever you want to call Him, but that's what society generally teaches and it's embraced by so many. But grace reminds us what is distinct about following Jesus. What is truly distinct about what we would consider true Christianity. All man-made religions are about law. All man-made religions are about how can I get up there to where God is. But Christianity is different, isn't it? It's not about how can I get to where God is. Christianity is about how God came to where we are. And in grace, He saves us and delivers us and takes us to where He is. Because it's by grace we're saved, not by works, lest any man should boast. Man didn't write the gospel because it's not about man. The gospel is about God coming to us. He does the work. And we have to rejoice in that. That's why I love so many of the songs that we sing. All of them, uh, at least in their, their, their source, but so many of them hit very clearly on this truth of grace. By grace alone we're saved. And you may ask, well, why was He gracious to me? <laughs> why did He call me? I imagine Paul asked that question a lot. Why me? I was the worst. Why did he show grace to me? The answer? We don't know. He just is gracious. 
So what I think about this is we must never stop praying for the grace of God to come to those that we love. And we must never stop praying for the grace of God to come to those we despise. <laughs> Enemies and friends alike. Praying that God would work in their lives. I'm sure many never thought Paul would come to Jesus. I'm sure there were many Christians who never even thought, I should probably pray for this guy. But by grace he did. Who are the people in your life that seem too far for God's grace to reach? Pray for them. Pray that God would work in their life. We must never stop praying for those things. You know, my story is one of God's grace. I don't have that dynamic story of I was on drugs and in a ditch and saw a light, you know. I grew up in church. I grew up hearing uh, the stories of the Bible over and over again. As a matter of fact, we're, our family's leaving right after service and going to get back to Morris, Oklahoma, and hopefully tonight go to First Baptist Church of Morris where I spent the first 19 years of my life. But you know what? I grew up in church and I grew up a diehard Pharisee. A lot like Paul. I was so full of pride. I, I thought, I'm really good at keeping all of these rules. And everybody thinks I'm a good kid. And that was my life. God was gracious to save me from even that. Because I was right where Paul was in my own arrogance thinking I'm doing something. I'm good enough. And God's grace came and saved me. I still battle that legalist in me. I still battle that guy and I will continue to battle that guy. What's your story of his grace? How has he worked in your life to show you who Jesus is, what he's done for you. I encourage you this week, share that story with someone. Take the opportunity to share that with a family member, with a friend, with a coworker. Just share with them the grace of God that's working in your life. And if you need a lead in, say, hey, my pastor at our church, he told us I needed to do this, so you're going to have to listen to this for a little bit. But just take the opportunity to share the grace of God. I'm going to ask you to bow with me this morning. And I just want to pray for us. Father, your word is so thorough. The connections that we make from Galatians to Acts to help us understand is just, God, it is a beautiful thing, especially for those, those of us in the room who, who love the study, who love the depth. We see that in a text like this today. For those who love the debate and the argument, we see that in a text like today. But God, it's not enough to enjoy the argument and to enjoy the um, the context and the history. Because Paul's point is that it's all about the grace of God. It's all about the good news of Jesus.
Help us to love that today. Help us to share that with others today. Help us to see in Paul ourselves. That's what we're meant to see. I wasn't exactly like Paul. I didn't do everything that Paul did. But I'm a sinner just like he was. And at a point in my life, you revealed Jesus to me to be my Savior. And I'm grateful for that today, God. And I pray that you would help me to share that truth with others. And I pray the same for each of us who are in this room today. God, we thank you for your word. Help it to be impactful and powerful. And it's working in our lives as we consider these truths moving through the rest of this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.